Good afternoon. Today is Friday, the 4th of August, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish. Delighted to have David Scott with me in the studio. And we'll also be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Well, we should always be afraid of something, according to the UK government. Uh, we're at risk. What can you tell us, David? Well, we were wondering uh, on, I think it was uh, Wednesday's programme, uh, why Chris Whitty was suddenly talking about volcanoes and earthquakes. And it didn't take long to find out because that very day, the government um, ran out their National Risk Register 2023 edition, uh, the new and improved th uh, list of things we should all be terrified of. Uh, now, this is a, a, a document that's going to look at all of the various um, problems present, uh, facing the country. And of course, it's based on COVID-19. Uh, they say the lessons from COVID-19 have been incorporated into the government's risk assessment methodology. They mean method, but they say methodology. Uh, the reasonable worst case scenario has been reshaped you got to love the vague language, into a more generic pandemic scenario reflecting a broader range of possible manifestations. <laughs> Again, very strange words. Uh, and additional impacts and measures and data have been incorporated into the assessment. Now, I don't know if that includes um, vaccines that don't work and are not safe and not effective. I don't know if that includes a situation where the government response is, in fact, uh, the problem and wrecks the economy and causes runaway inflation. I don't know what that means, but... Whatever it is, they've taken COVID-19 into account. Now, the, this is the risk assessment. So they're looking at likelihood, probability, and they're looking at consequences. So here we see government departments and agencies have assessed the likelihood of non-malicious risks and malicious risks, and they've used a five-year period for non-malicious risks and a two-year period for malicious risks. I would just point out, Brian, that technically speaking, in terms of risk assessment, this is garbage, right? You immediately have messed up all the data. Uh, it's incoherent and it should be done on a per year basis. It is in every other um, risk assessment I've ever seen, but not in this one. Uh, and then we get to uh, how the assessment of likelihood is actually scored. And this is a bit strange too, because here we see we have um, a score of five runs from unlikely to almost certain. And then uh, one, two, three, and four are, are less than that. And the percentages are huge. I mean, greater than 25% risk. And the, and the idea that unlikely is 35%, is but realistic, a realistic probability is 40%. It's just, it's just odd. Uh, none of these numbers make any sense, uh, but these are the numbers that are being used. And it's, it's worth bearing in mind that when we're looking at these issues, uh, it's based on probability, and the man who did the work on probability, Richard von Mises, um, a professor of applied mathematics who did the work on prob probability calculus to essentially create the science, said uh, the rational concept of probability, which is the only basis of probability calculus, applies only to problems in which there's either the same event repeating itself again and again, or a great number of uniform elements involved at the same time. So unless you have repetitive events and a lot of data, probability calculus is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. And uh, a little bit more of the background to this. Um, if we go into uh, uh, the guide to safety aspects from the International Standards Organization, 
Uh, they've got a document called Freedom from Unacceptable Risk, and they define things. They say a, a risk is in the context of the current values of society. So none of this is explored in the government document. It's just assumed that it's somehow scientific, but in fact, it, will, it depends upon the views of society. Um, and also, uh, if we uh, delve into other uh, ISO documents, um, they define the meaning of words. We've got one uh, on risk management vocabulary. It says um, that a risk is a combination of the probability and consequence of an event. Fair enough. <laughs> but it also refers to another document. It defines the probability. A real number between, on a scale zero to one attached to a random event that can be related to a long run relative frequency of occurrence. That's what von Mises was talking about. Or a degree of belief and they're conflating these two things. So what we're seeing here from the government is the degree of belief that the government and the government officials have that these terrible things are going to happen. So don't view this document as any sort of insight into the future or actual risks that, the, that, that you run or the country runs, but it is an interesting insight into the government mentality because what we're measuring here is the degree of belief in government officials that bad things are going to happen. So with that in mind, we delve a little deeper. Um, this is how they assess impact, it's depending on either fatalities or casualties or economic cost. Uh, and they'll move between these, these categories uh, kind of seamlessly and without announcing it. So we then have um, impact goes one to five, likelihood goes one to five, and they form a matrix in the art of crude risk assessment. Now, uh, a couple of interesting things. Number 44 is 1-1, one, one, so it's the lowest risk event. We'll come to that in a moment. The highest risk event is number 54. We'll come to that too. Uh, they do talk about uh, chronic risks, and of course, uh, climate change is one of those. Um, so we're, we're going on, we're, we're, we're lying about climate change, right? So we're talking about um, changes in water availability, uh, in, in more uh, storms and extreme weather events and higher sea levels. And it's all, measured, it's all mentioned in kind of vague language, might could, perhaps will, and of course nothing of this is known because none of, nothing of this is scientific. Uh, on to a few specifics. Uh, the risk of international terror attack, Brian, you'll be interested to see is, um, well, it's, it's five, it's very lightly, it's, it's, it's pretty minor, and those horizontal and vertical lines, those, those are the, their uncertainty in how these things are being, ha are being handled. Um, now, Sorry, David, I have, I have to just interject there and say, and of course, it was only a few years ago that Devon and Cornwall police were warning us that there was the likelihood of ISIS attacks at caravan and holiday sites in Devon and Cornwall. So The, the interesting thing, actually, about this is they talk about international, and they do mean international, they do, they do mean abroad. Just one, just one moment, David. Alex, can you mute your microphone, please? Thank you. Uh, they do mean abroad, um, and uh, they're, they're looking at uh, the risk of terrorism in Northern Ireland too, but they're not looking at the risk of terrorism in uh, the UK from Islamic or any other source. Oh. Interesting. So no more holidays for ISIS in Devon and Cornwall. That's Pam good. Apparently not. Good. It, doesn't, it doesn't make the list. Um, earthquake. Now, this is the one that was 1-1, one, one. so they're, they're pretty sure we're not at risk from earthquakes. So it's good to know that the government you know, can actually identify this. And we're very grateful for the expert advice on earthquake risk. Um, 
I did wonder why Volcanic Risk wasn't a 1-1 as well. And as you see, it's, it's pretty high and, and very uncertain. And when you read into the text, it's actually volcanoes in Iceland they're worried about, which might disrupt air travel, and that, that would be terrible. And um, so we've, we've got a whole lot of experts uh, coming up with this so-called data on that one. Uh, severe space weather. Now, I picked this one out because look at the uncertainty there. That's a graph that says, yeah, we, we haven't a clue. We, we don't know anything about this, and we're going to guess 4-4 because why not? This is, this is garbage, right? This is not informing anyone of anything. And, uh, well, a pandemic. We're pretty sure that pandemics are, are very frightening. Um, and they go into more detail on the pandemics because it says, well, we're going to look at uh, a, a worst-case scenario, um, an unmitigated respiratory, respiratory pandemic. So unmitigated, so the government's not going to do anything. That's interesting. Uh, and... Um, they're talking about a 4% symptomatic, symptomatic infections requiring hospitalisation and a 2.5% um, uh, case fatality ratio. So massively more than COVID. I mean, what's that? 25, 400 times more than, more than COVID. Much more deadly. And, and from this, uh, they assume 50% of the UK population falls ill. And they assume 840,000 deaths because that's fear. That's fear. Two and a half percent of half the population, that's the number you get. These numbers don't mean anything. They've been summoned out of it, their imagination, but that's a headline 840,000 deaths. Oh, be afraid, be very afraid. And of course, it's based on nothing at all. Um, and finally on this, um, an attack on a UK ally or partner outside NATO. It, they assume that NATO is invulnerable. There's no consideration of attack on a NATO partner. That apparently is impossible, not even worth thinking about. But we've looked at the risk of uh, an attack outside NATO requiring UK military assistance. So this is the sort of things that are informing government policy. It's extremely intellectually weak, vapid. Um, it's not based on anything, but it does generate headlines and it does generate fear. It does generate fear. So we've got applied psychology overlying statistics in order to make the population fearful. We've seen this before, but perhaps it should be fear of nuclear war, uh, which is the key issue. And of course, where is the likelihood of that? Well, possibly around Ukraine. But let's go back and look at some of the reporting about Ukraine. And um, The 28th of July, uh, the Telegraph had Richard Dannett, former chief of the defence staff, saying that Ukraine is on the verge of splitting Russia's army. Now, I've got to say here that this is simply not credible. He is not credible as a military analyst, uh, or his head is lost in the propaganda of the Ministry of Defence in UK. Um, so let's have a look at how things form. Uh, this was a BBC report from a week ago. Ukraine war, Western armour struggles against Russian defences. So this is the reality of the battlefield. And even the BBC had to use um, a, a video clip, actually, this was from the Russian Ministry of Defence showing the slaughter of Western tanks and armoured vehicles in Ukraine. But now we've got to this. It's got so bad that the UK propaganda is barely credible 
this is the latest update uh, from Defence Intelligence. And what's the first line talking about? Well, it's telling us that undergrowth regrowing across the battlefields of southern Ukraine is likely, there's the statistical qualifier, likely one factor contributing to the generally slow progress of the combat in the area. So the weeds on the battlefield, according to Defence Intelligence, uh, are causing real problems. Well, if we look at what's happening now, the, the, the key feature is that despite the Ukrainians losing thousands of men and hundreds of vehicles, they're not making any progress against the Russian defences. Uh, but the latest effort by the Ukrainians is massive drone attacks. And yes, they are destroying some uh, Russian armour and uh, artillery in these attacks. Um, but they are unable to penetrate the forward Russian defences, let alone the major defensive lines. So what, do we, what have we got here happening on the, West, on the Ukrainian battlefield? Well, I'm going to suggest that it is the Ukrainians uh, being encouraged to carry out a laboratory experiment on the use of drones in combat. This is tragic stuff. Um, meanwhile, we've got the Metro here reporting P Putin peace bombshell. Um, what's this about? Well, of course, Zelensky is now using drone attacks on Moscow, which are doing minor damage to buildings. Uh, but he has said, he's quoted here in this article, instead of merely defending my territory, uh, Ukraine will be taking the war to Russia. Um, so we've got a Zelensky who appears to be increasingly out of control. Uh, what is he now talking about attacking Russia? Well, the Russians, if uh, Dmitry Medvedev is to be believed, are getting more and more serious about what's happening in Ukraine. And uh, this was comment reporting in a number of uh, Western publications where he's saying, imagine if the offensive, which is backed by NATO, was a success and they... Uh, NATO and the Ukrainians tore off a part of our land, uh, then we will be forced to use a nuclear weapon according to the rules of a decree from the president of Russia. And he went on to say there would simply be no other option. Uh, so our enemies would pray for our warriors' success. Uh, they're making sure that global nuclear uh, fire is not ignited. So this is... This, this has been one of our analysis for quite a while. Uh, uh, Brian, the, the, the more the Ukrainian forces are successful, the greater the risk of escalation, including nuclear escalation, um, the, the greater the risk the war will spread. So the very thing that the West is pushing for would have the effect of, uh, of, of vastly increasing the death toll, vastly increasing the risk and moving it towards uh, a total war. So the fact that the, uh, that the Ukrainian offensive isn't actually going very far, very fast, these yeah. at the moment, is in fact a very good thing for the wider security of the entire world. I would say that's correct. Absolutely correct, David. Uh, well, I chose this uh, article because it was interesting, but also I found the image incredible. This is Lenta, uh, a Russian outlet. And this photograph to me was uh, just appalling. What was happening here? A party, I felt. I've put a caption over the top. So this is UK column. Hey, Joe, it's party time. We've killed the 420,000th Ukrainian and they are still willing to die for us. Now, I'm going to qualify that figure uh, because this figure has been bandied around in, uh, I'm going to call it unconfirmed estimates from social media 
analysts. But of course, this is the key thing. We still don't know how many Ukrainians have died, but it is a very large number. And if I put in the proper caption here, Ukraine receives billions from the United States uh, and Europe. What is this money used for and why do corruption scandals not sub subside in the country? In Western countries, fatigue from the Ukrainian issue is accumulating. Now, obviously, this is a very pro-Russian uh, article or the, the angle, uh, but it's quite truthful that the money is being poured into, uh, into Ukraine. So we're talking about billions of dollars, billions of euros coming in. And if we get down to the bottom, the key bit is it's saying that in particular, the IMF believes that the country's public debt that's the Ukrainian public debt, will grow in the next two years and will amount to over 100% of GDP. And of course, uh, they've got more to say about weapons going into Ukraine and uh, pointing out that more equipment and ammunition is simply going to inflame the situation in Ukraine itself. But uh, if we need to ask some questions about uh, 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 what, what's happening with the money and who's putting it in, I'm going to encourage our viewers to look at the European Investment Bank. They're boasting that they've been working in Ukraine uh, since 2007, and uh, they've been working on the European Neighbourhood Policy and the Eastern Partnership. But I actually think there's uh, more to it than that, uh, because as we'll see later when we start talking about the banks and cash, um, we will... Uh, uh, we will be seeing more of the European Investment Bank. Now, I was going to play a, a, a film clip here of what was happening uh, in Iran, but I'm going to save that for the coming week. And I'll just mention here that as we see the situation in Ukraine getting serious, uh, in, in the United States, they are starting to call for a limited uh, military draft. And in this article from military.com, uh, we've got a quote here from a former uh, U.S. Marine Lieutenant Colonel Joe Plensler, and he's saying we should have our military recruiters sign up new troops for 11 months out of the year and then have the selective service draft, the Delta. He's talking about filling the gap, basically, between the military's needs and the total number recruited. But here we're starting to see, I'm going to say, hawkish people in America um, saying we actually need a draft in order to cope with what's happening around the Ukrainian crisis and with uh, China. Well, we'll leave Ukraine there. Um, Alex, you've got some uh, input on the state of education in the Netherlands. And people may be wondering, Brian, how that affects them in their own countries. But the Netherlands took very early a very different route to educational freedom and diversity than other Western countries did because of the strong input, particularly by Calvinists who were concerned about the state of secularization and globalism being taught even a century ago. So this is a bellwether. This is a canary in the coal mine for other countries. Uh, and I my, myself taught in one of the Dutch Christian reformed schools when I first came to the Netherlands, which is why I'm perhaps more exercised and more familiar with this material than most. We'll put on screen now uh, an article by Babelsberat uh, MV, which is a rough equivalent to North America's uh, Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And uh, they're reporting here, based on uh, reporting by the Dutch Calvinist daily newspaper, Reformatorisch Dagblad, that the new uh, citizenship law uh, framework which has come in is putting under pressure the century-old um, uh, 
arrangements which were brought into place. So the detail we'll put on screen now is that uh, there is fundamental disagreement uh, between what the government wants, of course, the cabinet has just resigned, but this was just before that, um, and uh, also what the education authorities, formal and informal, want, and what the umbrella organisations of all the Christian schools, Roman Catholic, uh, left-wing Protestant and Calvinist, what they want. Um, what's, uh, if we go on to the next slide, you'll see what's uh, going on here, uh, which is that uh, the very year after uh, Dutch, the Dutch constitution obtained its unique Article 23, uh, which we'll go into detail about in a moment, which set the boundaries for the current arrangements. The next year, 1918, this organization, the Onderwijsraad, or Education Council, was established by statute. You can see their logo there Im implying building blocks, and it, you have to read it bottom to top, which is perhaps an interesting detail. Uh, here in the report, which is uh, what's produced this concern, this education council, not a part of the government, allegedly, is saying we have to set limits to the century-old freedom of education because we have this thing which I was reporting on recently called the democratic rule of law, uh, a, a very strange hybrid beast which I was reporting on when the Dutch intelligence agency AIVD was recently reporting on threats to the, uh, the su supposed order. Here's its uh, main um, uh, write-up, the cover, covering note for the PDF report, says that... Uh, we're not allowed to allow um, uh, parents who, who have so much freedom in, the, in these school boards in the Dutch arrangements because of this 1917 law, constitutional law, which can't be overturned without a two-thirds majority in Parliament. We can't give them all the freedom because we also need uh, certainty of law and equality before the law. And we now have a society uh, that puts non-discrimination and equal treatment above all. Um, the, in addressing this constitutional problem they have uniquely in the West, which is why it's so indicative for other countries, the Education Council is saying, what is good education? And here's the sting, really, for those Dutch Calvinists a century ago, who also uh, paved the way for, for example, free Jewish education uh, in, in the uh, moral sense, free from interference as well as free to the parent. Um, and all the others, the Steiner schools, the Jena schools, for which the Netherlands is well known, all funded by the taxpayer's dime. That's what's unique. Um, what the government is now coming out with, with its allied bodies like this Education Council is, well, yes, but we have social values, you see, so you can't be taking our money uh, and having a free hand in the curriculum if our values uh, are, are threatened. Uh, and the council admits in these various extracts I'm putting on screen uh, that the problem is they cannot tell a school board off, controlled by parents and their own ethic, ethical understanding, uh, who have the whip hand over the teachers and the curriculum uniquely, even though it's government funded. Uh, they can't uh, do that where there's no law in place. They're basically nudging the legislator in the Netherlands to say, come up and put, come up uh, and, and have some more restrictions on these schools because there's too much freedom right now. And children are coming out of school with the idea that there's something beyond and above the state and the values that we all share in common, like not... Uh, uh, not saying anything bad about homosexual marriage. Uh, if you want more detail, we have uh, a two-part article by a Dutch constitutionalist uh, on the website called Ultimately, the Netherlands has no actual constitution. Part one talks about this killing of the Dutch constitution by saying, well, you have absolute rights except where we say you, you don't have them. And part two goes into the concept of arbitrary rule. For those who want a really deep dive, and this will be in the show notes as everything is under the upload of this video, you can use a machine translator uh, to find out what's being said on this website, De Nederlandse Grondwet, about the whole unique background, and uh, let's put that on screen, of Article 23. 
the current uh, uh, arrangements. So even if you get a unique Western country that put on um, put in black and white that you know it was constitutional freedom that parents can have schooling which doesn't actually give them other people's values, give their children other people's values. There are ways and means. Uh, if we move on to uh, the, what's been going on in Dutch courts as well. Uh, NOS, the Dutch public broadcaster, has reported that um, there has been a slap on the wrist for a judge uh, who attempted unduly to influence the trial on the MH17 uh, alleged uh, attackers, uh, the Russians from the Donetsk area. Uh, of course, Patrick Henningsen reported this trial and came over to The Hague for us as well for 21st Century Wire, so the viewers will, be, will know about that. Uh, but bring on the detail on screen now. We see that the only thing that the Dutch equivalent of the BBC is prepared to admit is that Financiel Dagblad, a rough equivalent of the Financial Times, got a scoop on this, that this advisor at the Supreme Court, Hocherad, which isn't a Supreme Court, read that article I just put on screen by the Dutch analyst to see why it isn't. Um, this analyst's uh, brother had written a book uh, basically accusing the, uh, the, the mainstream case of being nonsense in this shooting down of an airliner over Ukraine uh, eight, nine years ago now. Uh, and the, in, it was acknowledged that this judge had freedom of expression. There's your fundamental rights of the constitution again. But she should have realized what effect it had given her personality and her standing in life. So there's the other hand withdrawing what was given. Uh, Nine for News is a freer Dutch outlet and actually gives us the name of the Dutch in question, judge in question, Charlotte von Rheinberg. Um, she's only been given uh, a slap on the wrist because she basically admitted it was a mea culpa, that she went through the show of that in order to, uh, uh, to avoid consequences. But judges can't really be punished uh, that severely. And we find that the uh, title of the book, written under a pseudonym by the judge's brother, uh, is um, is given there, and you'll find the, the details there. It, is, it has been um, given a new lease of life by opposition parties like the Forum for Democracy precisely because of this publicity. Uh, just at the end of this segment, to tell viewers who don't already know that in a couple of months in November, we will have a general election for the lower house of parliament, the Dutch House of Representatives. The Kisrat, the Electoral Commission, has announced this, and the big uncertainty right now is whether the one or two parties, including the new BBB party, which champion farmers' rights, are going to um, insist on a good deal for farmers who are being expropriated right now. The first expropriation orders have already come in this summer, or whether they may be induced to compromise by the inevitable um, uh, trading that goes on uh, between these parties and the smaller ones that they need for a majority in Parliament. Alex, thank you very much uh, for that comprehensive run through. What did I pick up from it? Well, if you're a parent, the state in Holland is going to tell you uh, what the education is going to be for your child. And if you've got religious views, it's going to walk over those. It's also going to tell judges what to say in court. Or is that a bit strong? Um, no, that is not too strong, Brian. Uh, the, the Netherlands has this unique arrangement that actually gives people a huge amount of freedom of speech. If you compare it with even the UK, certainly the continent of Europe, it has precisely because it took uh, inspiration from the best of British history, got a phenomenal amount of freedom of speech. But if you compare it with the best British tradition, which is in the USA, you find where it falls down, which is that the state is telling its offices in all three branches of government, you are upstanding fellows, you would never do anything naughty, there's no human depravity, we're children of the French Enlightenment, liberté, égalité, fraternité. And these terms translate straight into the advice which these NGOs are now pushing on the organs of government. Okay, thank you for that, Alex. Well, for our audience, if you like uh, what we're doing, we're going to say please join 
the UK column and subscribe. And of course, you can then join in the community and find out what other like-minded people are talking and thinking about. You can also help us by visiting the UK column shop and making a purchase. And we'd also like to say to our wider audience in UK and worldwide, uh, we're putting out information which we'd like people to share to get the word out as far and wide as possible. Now, big thank you because uh, the last UK column news, I was talking about Oxford City Council and their uh, promotion of the Tart Drag Queen Acts. And I suggested that people could be asking for information around a risk assessment as much. Uh, uh, as much as some other things. And uh, I was delighted to get an email in from Caroline who said that she'd actually done that. She contacted Oxford regarding a risk assessment around that drag queen training and uh, she'd received the normal holding reply. So she's now got to wait 20 working days to get a response. Uh, but uh, of course, as I said to her in my reply email, um, Oxford City Council is now having to respond to you instead of the other way round. Yes, it, I mean, it's actually people really underestimate the power of doing this, asking these questions. It has a tremendous yeah. impact on the officials because they have all of a sudden got to defend their position. They're on the defensive and they're working for us once again. It makes a big difference. OK, Alex, you've got some uh, mentions of uh, new UK column articles. There has, as always, been a glut of excellent new articles. Would that more of our viewers read the website and shared these articles on ukcolumn.org. Um, this one is a very interesting one by Simon Elmer, one of our most thoughtful writers in a very thoughtful bunch of writers. Type it again and you'll see what the, the, the juice of this one is about. Uh, it is about Alice Oswald, who is South Devon's own uh, celebrated poet, local to UK Column. Uh, and in a cultured and reasoned piece, uh, Simon Elmer is saying, uh, what is the purpose of your poetry, Alice Oswald? Um, is it to celebrate the beauties of the South Devon coastline in uh, rarefied metaphor? Uh, or is it um, to reflect the horrors that we're living through? Are you going for truth or are you going for awards, gongs? So that's a very interesting one. Uh, okay. We also have a piece up on the Sound of Freedom film, uh, which has come out. Uh, I know that there's a controversy among our uh, audience as to whether we should uh, mention this film because of the allegiances of the makers and backers of it. Ian Davis goes actually head on into that argument and says it doesn't matter whether the film itself is good, bad or indifferent. The problem of child uh, trafficking is real and huge and unspeakable and needs to become discussed. So it's a shame that people are banging their heads against this brick wall and I think that they should read the piece more carefully. There's also uh, the first of a new series, well, not a series, but a general effort we're going to have on the coronation and the constitution. Uh, it's a distinctive of UK Column's work. I understand there's some new viewers uh, today who um, will be watching UK Column for news for the first time out of disenchantment with GB News. And I would suggest to them that one of the reasons we are different from them is we have a constitutional reporting area. Uh, so that's something that GB News doesn't have. Where, to what extent is our authority legitimate? We also have a piece up in our mind section by a Belgian, Philippe de Munzereau, on whether Marx was a truly great thinker. Spoiler, he thinks he was a dunce, as the image suggests. And from Australia, Dr. Petra, uh, Petra Buskins has put up a piece on uh, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s bid for the presidency, which will interest many. Also meant to mention in passing, uh, it's not just Britain that has an enabling regulator in medicines in the form of the MHRA. If you bring that on screen and bring up the bottom line, you will see that the Daily Skeptic is reporting uh, that even Karl Lauterbach, the, the uh, health minister in Germany, has admitted that without the Paul Ehrlich Institute, the rough equivalent of the MHRA, vaccines would have been authorised much later. 
later. He didn't call them an enabler, but it's pretty clear what's going on there. Uh, this brings us to Kosovo for our next segment. And we have something very interesting going on uh, in the form of the grey zone uh, with Kit Klarenberg as lead author. Lead author. People who watch us for uh, regularly will know that they come up with some quite interesting exposés. Uh, we have to stress here that the lady on screen is accused by Kit Klarenberg and the grey zone uh, of being a former or current MI6 officer or SIS officer. Uh, we have no proof of that either way, and I am withholding judgment on the matter. But the lady on screen at the moment, Alicia Kearns, is now the chairwoman of the British Parliament's Foreign Affairs Select Committee, a very powerful role. She claims she's faced misogyny and age discrimination because as a 30-something woman, she's not the traditional type to chair that very influential committee. But the Grey Zone is asking whether a war is being pushed in Kosovo by her acting as a British state agent. We'll try to stay away from the personality of Alicia Kearns, but there is some detail we do have to show here. For example, uh, Alban Kurti, the premier, uh, premier of uh, Kosovo, um, is uh, not uh, being told what to do much by the British government, uh, which has suddenly started slapping him on the wrist for uh, various ethnic problems that there still are in Kosovo 15 years after its uh, uh, unilateral declaration of independence uh, and recognition by most Western countries. And the, the Great On article by Clarenberg suggests that Alicia Kearns has a role to play here and calls her a veteran psychological warfare specialist and a British intelligence operative. Once again, we do not know whether this claim is well-founded or not. Let's go on, therefore, to the detail of what the Grey Zone says. One thing it does is bring up a piece which, um, uh, or a, an extract of a speech uh, given by Alicia Kearns in a debate just a month ago, the 4th of July, on Srebrenica Memorial Week. Srebrenica, of course, is in Bosnia, not in Kosovo or Albania. But here she is really laying it on thick and saying that Serbia must be punished. It's the source of all the ills in the Balkans, effectively. I am paraphrasing here. And she made a startling allegation here about weapons being smuggled from Serbia to Orthodox churches in ethnic Serbian northern pockets of uh, uh, Kosovo in ambulances. Uh, this was then denied, if we go on to the next slide. It actually required uh, K4, the peacekeeping forces in Kosovo, and later the British ambassador as well, to say we have no evidence of that. Um, on to the next slide and you will see again that um, this was uh, denied uh, by the British ambassador. But first, this slide. Uh, these are the details which we won't go into all the detail on, on um, uh, Alicia Kearns' alleged links to James Lemessurier of the White Helmets fame. Um, and her uh, claim to fame is that in about a decade ago, just under a decade ago, she spent two years uh, very um, busily promoting uh, a foreign office uh, pr uh, campaign on social media and elsewhere, which was called UK Against Daesh. And as head of that cell, she had her spookery, it is the allegation. There's also a tie over to Torchlight Group with GCHQ connections, which Mike Robinson, who's off on his summer holidays at the moment, has encouraged our audience to look into the possibly irregular funding of by the foreign office. Uh, here's the, the clincher for it, really, that the British ambassador had to respond to this speech and say, despite what the chairwoman of the Foreign Affairs Committee said in Parliament, we see no evidence that this is going on. I don't take sides in this, but you've got Foreign Office and Parliament, parliamentarians specialising in Kosovo, making directly opposite claims as to what's going on as ethnic tensions continue to be a major problem, having seen in recent months mayors um, uh, trying to take their seats of office and being attacked and cross-border kidnaps of officials. And at this stage, I would like to bring on board uh, a, 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 an interesting new friend of UK column, um, who is Arbor Lodja, 
whom I have recently got to know, who is a journalist in Pristina in Kosovo. Um, Arba, you're very welcome to the program. And the first thing I'd like to ask you is, again, staying away from the allegations against Alicia Kearns personally, what effect did this article have on you uh, uh, reporting the tensions in your own uh, homeland? Have you seen inter-ethnic relations uh, deteriorate in the way described? And uh, what are the reasons you assess for any change in, in ethnic relations in Kosovo? Uh, thank you for inviting me, Alex. Uh, it's quite interesting to read such article, which is, uh, you know, interesting also to uh, interpret the situation in terrain in the north of Kosovo, because recently in May we have seen some, uh, you know, movement from a political elite of Kosovo and also uh, uh, how. Uh, political elite in Kosovo calls uh, uh, different ethnic uh, groups that uh, work uh, uh, in the north of uh, uh, Kosovo with the support of Belgrade. And uh, there was uh, uh, escalating tensions uh, and also there were uh, held, uh, uh, you know, uh, mayor uh, elections uh, for which Albanians uh, with uh, not the majority of Serbian people participating in, in, on those elections, won the elections and uh, Prime Minister Kurti wanted those uh, mayors uh, to be installed in uh, 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 municipality objects and this really raised tensions between Serbian population there. And uh, what happened was also that those elections were uh, legitimized by uh, the EU and the US, also the UK, and uh, uh, Prime Minister Kurti uh, claims were that uh, these were legitimate elections and uh, therefore uh, we need mayors to work from the uh, municipality objects for which uh, Serbian population, which did not take part in the elections, refused. And these were, uh, were the tensions. And once I read the article, I could have seen that uh, after Kurti moved uh, with uh, installing the new mayors, uh, he uh, was not supported by U.S., especially from uh, Senator, from uh, Secretary Blinken, which condemned uh, the government of Kosovo uh, and uh, called the escalation on their part. Uh, therefore, uh, you could have uh, reflect whether where did Kurti get the support and why he was not coordinated uh, with American, uh, uh, let's say, uh, government and uh, ambassador which uh, usually happened with the political elite, uh, politicians uh, and the people in power in Kosovo. So uh, it's quite also shocking to hear such uh, allegations, but uh, it's also very interesting also to read. Now, you mentioned there in your response the US and its role supporting certain politicians and the UK. People might be thinking that the UK is small fry. What's its involvement? Well, we blitzed through Alicia Kearns uh, just there in the segment, but uh, sharp-eyed viewers will have noticed that she was saying that the mechanism she wishes Britain to use to come on, come down hard on Serbia at the moment is the Quint, a very informal group that it doesn't even have a standing in international law, no secretariat or treaty basis to it, which itself is a derivative of the contact group for the Balkans minus Russia. So that's the background to that. Now, Kosovan statehood is now 15 years old, and of course it's unacknowledged by many parts of the world, most of Latin America, Asia, Africa, the Russian Federation, even three EU member states, but Kosovo is making its way. Um, what's your assessment of Kosovo's current viability as a state, given this uh, 
arrangement. And as you answer, we will be playing out silently. We'll start it now, I think. Uh, we'll be playing out footage of Prime Minister Alban Kursi, whom you mentioned here, um, who was making a speech very recently, a month ago. Um, an opposition MP put a, a picture of Pinocchio on, on his rostrum, alleging that he was a liar. One of his own allies took it away and ripped it up. And as you will see, an oppositionist then came up to the podium and uh, uh, threw a bottle of water over Prime Minister Kurti and his ally, prompting a general brawl and the involvement of his bodyguards. Kurti always seems to have heavy bodyguards. I discussed this with you recently, um, and you suggested that Kursi had a, had a background as a bruiser. Here's a close-up of what went on, and that when he was an oppositionist, he would have done the same thing or did the same thing in Parliament. But stepping aside again from the personality, just as we did with Alicia Kearns, What's going on here with the uh, the viability of Kosovo as an overwhelmingly ethnic Albanian de facto and, to some cases, de jure state? Uh, how well served are you by your own political class? Uh, Kurti was for a long time in an op opposition, and uh, therefore, uh, once he got into power, uh, he was called that he got into power with populism agenda. And uh, he was very uh, active as a, as a leader of opposition, and he usually used uh, these kind of techniques to intimidate his counterparts. Uh, therefore, this kind of uh, uh, thing that, that happened in uh, parliament is not new, because uh, uh, Kurti's party did to uh, Prime Minister Mustafa uh, five or six years ago the same, and... Uh, uh, the interesting part uh, were that why uh, the majority of people were reacting to such actions when they did not react when Kurti was doing it to his counterparts. Anyhow, I think people of Kosovo uh, these 15 years have been served, you know, decent. I would not say really well. Uh, we have the uh, same problems as all countries in Balkans have. You know, corruption is high. Uh, but uh, now things are starting to uh, started to improve, and uh, uh, the relationship between uh, Kosovo and other countries around, except Serbia, is excellent. Uh, but I would call it that in these 15 years we could have done better. That's for sure. Uh, and uh, Kosovo uh, is getting more recognition now in EU with uh, uh, visa liberalization that recently moved uh, forward, and uh, people of Kosovo will travel in. Uh, visa-free in Europe uh, starting January 1st. Uh, and I think it was done something uh, better these years in order to uh, be granted such, uh, uh, I would call it a, a favor from EU because they were also isolated for all those years, uh, despite that uh, Albania, North Macedonia, Serbia, Montenegro, Bosnia, uh, were granted visa liberalization. I think the political situation played its role. And uh, one of the people who played, major, let's say, majorly in this uh, kind of situation were the uh, Kurti, uh, uh, Kurti opposition party, which uh, uh, really blocked some, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, if, you, if we can go back, uh, Kurti blocked uh, the ratification of uh, uh, demarcation with Montenegro, and uh, Kurti also... Uh, were part of uh, blocking the association of uh, municipal Serb municipalities, which Prime Minister Mustafa stri uh, struck a deal uh, with uh, EU intermediaries. So uh, these were uh, the, uh, the uh, Kurti movements that kind of uh, held Europe, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, standing and p uh, keeping Kosovo weighted. 
uh, waiting for the visa liberalization process that uh, were due in 2000 and probably 15. But uh, I think uh, we can do way better with our political elite and other stuff regarding uh, pe uh, people of Kosovo being served better. Thank you very much again for that, Arbor. I hope that you will be able to stay around and for our paid subscribers in extra time, we can go into more detail on the uh, background to the ethnic Albanian history in both Kosovo and Albania uh, and discuss uh, our recent meeting there in, in Duras in Albania. So I hope you will uh, stay on there. Yeah, I would gladly do that. Okay, thank you very much uh, for that report. Well, we're going to move on to matters to do with uh, banks and economy. Uh, yeah, so as many people will be all too painfully aware, the Bank of England uh, put up interest rates again this week. Uh, so the headline rates, uh, base rate is now 5.25%. And inflation, uh, as measured by the CPI, is still around 8%, 7.9%. So around four times the target. There are many strange things all starting to become obvious in, in uh, the world uh, bond markets and in the debt markets. Um, that uh, ultimately service these government debts and government overreach. Uh, here we have uh, something odd happening in Japan. Now, Japan had uh, fixed interest rates at zero, and then that wasn't sustainable, and then it was a quarter of a percent, and then that wasn't sustainable, and then it was a half percent. And as you can see in this graph, it's blasted through that. And just for a chuckle, and this is purely for comedy, uh, comedy effect, let's go to the Central Bank of Japan and find out what they're saying about it. And here we have uh, Ueda, the, uh, uh, the finance, uh, sorry, the head of the Bank of Japan. Um, uh, and the Financial Times are, are, are praising his tweak. Uh, and they said it's a cleverly designed tweak. And what has actually happened is they've gone and they've said, well, um, we had a 0% interest rate policy. And we reinterpreted that. That's, well, with a, with a plus or minus 0.5% range. That meant the, they had effectively moved the interest rates uh, up to 0.5%. And now we've not changed anything, but we've, we've made that now a reference value. And, and the 0.5% plus or minus applies again, so it's now up to 1%. So what he's actually done is he's doubled their interest rate policy, but he's not admitted he's doing it. And the language is very strange, and it shows a desperation to control the narrative that's not based on anything real. And just very quickly, to go to what is real, so this lady was uh, featured in the I newspaper today. Um, she uh, earns 2000 a month. Her mortgage payment's now 2700 uh, she's uh, been helped by family and food banks, and she's struggling to live. She is unable to sell the house. She's unable to remortgage the house. She's unable to get out from this millstone that she's now got. And uh, this is the reality for increasing numbers of our people in Britain. Indeed. Well, uh, a big thank you to somebody who pointed out this um, uh, petition GB News is running at the moment, Don't Kill Cash. Now, this is largely off the back of... Um, uh, matters to do with the banks closing down uh, pe people's accounts. This has stirred up uh, everything to do with banking. Uh, but of course, yes, we've all been looking at cash going. And uh, if I just add a bit in here, this is uh, where you can sign in your name and add your signature. Uh, 243,342 people signed up to date. So this is uh, quite a big uh, campaign being run by GB News. Um, but I thought it'd be interesting just to flick through um, reports about uh, cash and what's happening. So 
This is uh, May uh, uh, 2019. Cash here to stay as government commits to protecting access. Current makeup of UK coins and notes will be maintained for years to come. So this is all reassurance that nothing untowards is going on. Uh, We've got the Bank of England here, though, um, in uh, 2019, June, uh, getting the public to think about cash dying out. And what are the new digital ways to pay? So uh, the bulk of that very short article is all about the benefits of cashless society. Um, And if I just show you a little bit more of it, we've got some nice graphics here. Is cash in uh, decline? And it goes on, what does the future hold for cash? Uh, But of course, what it really does is it gives you all the benefits of what a cashless society is fast and convenient, widely accepted, is helpful for budget management. So quite clear that the policy coming in through the Bank of England is for cashless. Um, Was that something that was debated in Westminster at all? It doesn't appear to be. It seems to be policy within the bank itself. Here's a Reuters report. Bank of England tells banks to preserve access to cash. Now, this is 2021. So on one hand, the Bank of England is busy saying that cash is going to go. And on the other hand, it's saying, don't worry, we're going to preserve it. But David, you'll like this because in the article, the blame (laughs) for cash going is put squarely on the back of all matters to do with COVID-19 and lockdown. And if we have a look at a different source, this is charged. Uh, Retail Tech News, Uh, it says in 2021, the UK will be almost cashless by 2024. Uh, So we're not far away from that. And it talks about a recent string of initiatives and uh, free to use cash machines are disappearing. So uh, they're pretty happy here what's going. But if we get into the article, oh dear, it's that nasty COVID virus that's killed off cash. So I think the public is being spun a line and this is a very deep line, um, but we don't have to go too far to see that uh, the behavioral insights team, whilst we can't point a finger uh, at their work deliberately in getting rid of cash, we can show that they're now deeply embedded with the banks uh, in order to encourage green behaviours in the public. So here's the Behavioural Insights team. And in this article, they are boasting of their interaction through an organisation called COGO. And that is working with the NatWest with the aim to help and inform and change customer thinking and behaviours. So very quick question, David, do you get a warm feeling from the banks being at work in the background, changing not only our behaviours, but the way we actually think? Not awfully. And and the reason is, uh, when they say COVID killed cash, it certainly did it some harm, but it wasn't, of course, COVID. What it was, was, was regulations that prevented people approaching other human beings and therefore they couldn't use cash because it's physically impossible to do so without approaching another human being. And everything was shut down, personalised online and, and human interaction by government edict was prevented. And that's what harmed the use of cash. Uh, and when they say COVID-19, that is, of course, what they mean. Indeed. Well, if you want to know more about COGO itself, uh, you can obviously go to their website. Here's the big headline, Carbon Footprint Management Products that Enable Individuals and Businesses to Measure, 
understand and reduce their impact on the climate. Interestingly, this uh, company uh, came out of New Zealand. Uh, they're on a mission to empower hundreds of millions of individuals and businesses worldwide to measure, understand and reduce their impact on the climate. Uh, we're on this mission to be the world's first gigacorn because we're passionate about the future well-being of our planet and more sustainable futures within our grasp if we all act now. Can you believe it? A single company which is going to empower hundreds of millions of people and they're going to be, uh, what's the word, enabled to tackle climate change. This is utopian dream, but very... And if we all act now, it almost sounds like a threat, Brian. <laughs> of course, because you should be fearful of everything to do with the so-called climate change. But let's bring in the European Investment Bank, which I mentioned earlier in the news in the Ukrainian segment. This is a quote from the president. We, we have still a long way to go when it comes to climate, but the results show that the bank is transforming faster than anyone could have expected into the, quote, EU climate bank. So if anybody is in any doubts as to the mix between uh, banks and fiscal policy and cash and money, no, no, no. The banks are going to control our behavior in order to assume, in order to get us to save the planet. And any behavioral uh, change techniques will, of course, be of value to them. Um, now, Here's uh, the World Economic Forum. Many people will be following them pretty quickly. And we can see here in 2020 that they were fully into it, the benefits of a cashless society. And if you went through that article with the World Economic Forum, uh, they'd be talking about India. Uh, so I thought we'd just put up one paper. There are many such papers. Uh, but this is uh, a group talking about cashless payment a behavioral change to economic growth. Uh, this one is based on India and the World Economic Forum happened in that particular article to be focusing on India. So the banks have now got the weapon of politicized uh, behavioral change and they're going to use it to change our whole life experience, never mind whether we can use cash. And uh, I'll just rub this one in because the World Economic Forum here also uh, says very strongly that uh, behavioral experiments uh, help boost sustainable leadership. So the leaders worldwide, the Trudeaus, the Tony Blairs, uh, they're all going to be able to benefit by the use of behavioral uh, change and behavioral experiments. Uh, so what does the World Economic Forum say here? Behavioural experiments give leaders tangible actions to embed responsibilities and sustainable behaviours within their organisations. Through behavioural experimentation, organisations can de-risk change. Oh, this will be useful and fully unlock human potential. Uh, leadership experiments with 10 young global leaders show that organisations that embrace iterative, that's the salami slicing technique to get change in without people notice. So organisations that embrace iterative change significantly boost their sustainability score. So pretty clear what's coming. A very interesting, David. Brian, that that was illustrated with children because they're talking about global leadership. Why would you illustrate that with children? Because every child matters, David, is, and, is the and, answer. Every unless child the behavioural change is being rolled out, as in Holland, as elsewhere, as in Britain, 
uh, rolled out by a process of indoctrination, not education. Indeed. And uh, what better place to go for a little bit of indoctrination than coffee? Well, uh, we're finishing on this one. Um, this is uh, the Costa Express. This is Costa's um, um, moment in uh, going woke and perhaps also going broke. So they've used this uh, cartoon illustration on some hoarding and some vans and things, and it is a trans man, and they are illustrating mastectomy scars uh, in this uh, cartoon. This has received quite a reaction. Uh, so we have here the Independent um, reporting on it. They say Costa Coffee defends the mural of a post-op trans man after the boycott threat. Um, they've been accused of uh, glamorising complex and dangerous surgery. Uh, and they responded, we want everyone that interacts with us to experience the inclusive environment that we create, to encourage people to feel welcomed, free and unashamedly proud to be themselves. So it's very much the, the, the current religion. Um, the mural in its entirety showcases and celebrates inclusivity. So it's, it's, it's DIE, diversity, inclusivity, equity is what they are pushing. Uh, some of the reactions have been quite interesting. Uh, so uh, Julia Hartley Brewer was uh, uh, interviewing a Labour MP, uh, Lloyd Russell Moyle, um, who was entirely supportive of Costa. And she asked if someone said they wanted to cut their right leg off, would that be their choice and would you endorse that? Would we celebrate it? Now, the, uh, if, you, if you're into what uh, crip theory is, the answer to that one is, oh, yes. Um, and uh, the, uh, some of the other comments here, We've got James S's uh, complaining that this is um, the mural, uh, quoting the Costa Sportsman, the mural's entirety showcases and celebrates inclusivity. And he says, supporting women to be themselves by encouraging them to fundamentally change themselves, it's a disgrace. Uh, Lawrence Fox um, was uh, more, more uh, blunt. He said, you're promoting the mutilation of healthy young girls. I hope you're boycotted out of existence. And uh, the boycott is indeed running out, so running, running forward. So we hear ABC News from America picked up in the story, um, talking about the boycott, and they, they, they quoted it very, in a very odd manner. They said, anti-LGBTQ social media users are threatening to boycott. No, it's customers that are threatening to boycott the world's second largest coffee chain. And uh, the Telegraph, um, uh, they also reported on this. Uh, the woke mural leaves me no choice but to boycott them. Who's with me? Uh, writes Judith Woods. She says, a, a, a grown-up of either sex, and there are only two, remember, who pointed out that the overwhelming, indeed overwhelmed majority of women who have their breasts surgically removed don't morph into groovy surfer dudes, grow cool beards, and live happily ever after. Um, and uh, more hard-hitting, unheard here, says Costa's trans mastectomy advert as an insult to women. Women. Uh, cutting off a girl's healthy breast is an act of mutilation, writes Joan Smith, um, and uh, not a fashion accessory. Uh, again, the, the public response has been very strong. Um, uh, here we see comments that, 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 that Costa are having their Bud Light moment, and we see regular Costa Coffee uh, customers uh, considering this a disgrace. But the most um, moving and, I think, important uh, comment on this was from this woman, Sinead Watson, who wrote in the Mail Online about her, her experience of uh, transitioning and having her breasts removed and going through the entire medicalization process when she was going through 
puberty with all the difficulties that 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 brings um, and, and, and developing into a woman at quite a young age and having male attention she didn't know what to do with and couldn't handle and all the difficulty that caused her. And she writes very precisely and very movingly about this. Um, she talked about how the professionals just took everything she said at face value uh, and they agreed uh, with everything. They prescribed her testosterone um, and she said, no one ever told me the truth. You're not a man and it's impossible to desex yourself. Um, and uh, she then concludes in, in her piece about how unhappy she was after she had the surgery, so unhappy that she had a breakdown and she attempted suicide. And uh, she said it, she was safe by her family and a tiny group of women who were brave enough to go on the internet and admit that they regretted transitioning too. And this is what she's doing to help others now. And she concludes, uh, we need to acknowledge that puberty is, is difficult. We need to help girls negotiate change. We need to tell them it's very common to go through phases of hating your body. And we need to educate men to stop sexualizing young girls. Quite simply, it's time for us to wake up, smell the coffee and realize the terrible damage that can be done to young women. I thought that was an excellent piece, Brian. Yes, and uh, of course, many people say to us, but what can we do to stop these terrible things happening? Well, this is an easy one because you simply stop drinking the coffee and also you tell people why you're not drinking the coffee anymore. So we'll leave that one there. Now, we've got a couple of uh, images to finish on. Alex, you get the first one. Well, that's one of mine, Brian. Oh, is it? I beg yes. your pardon, David. Okay. Uh, so this is, a man goes to the doctor here and, he say, and the doctor says, well, that's a nasty bug you've got there. And as you look down, the, the ladybug, is say, the ladybug is saying, real communism has never been tried. <laughs> okay, this one's yours, Alex. This is a, a, an office setting, whether an interview or just a chat with the boss isn't certain. Uh, but the boss or interviewer asks, are you concerned about the increase in artificial intelligence? And the uh, employee or interviewee says, no, but I am concerned about the decrease in real intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> and one more from me. Uh, here we see a man reading a book uh, on 1933 to 1945. Germany, and he's wondering how could people allow it to get to that point, but he's reading it with his face mask, his vaccine certificate tattooed on his shoulder, and his uh, face screen as well to protect him from everything that we must fear. And this one's for me as well. I don't know who the cartoonist is here, but they're suggesting there's four ways to become a zombie. Infection, as in um, the zombie bite, radiation, virus, and going to college. <laughs> which says it all and uh, before we finish the news today we've got a, a video clip a music video clip just tell us about that briefly alex these fine performers are the group Hollowbone. Uh, they've performed at, if I'm correct, both of the uh, the events uh, that uh, Hope have laid on in Sussex. UK Column covered one uh, of them last year and has uh, uh, mentioned the other. You'll still find that section on ukcolumn.org, last year's Hope Festival. Hollowbone have now brought out uh, a new single, Hold the Line. Uh, they've brought out several, but this one particularly struck us. And in this one minute extract of their song uh, played out by permission, you will see that most of uh, the presenters of UK Column News get a cameo appearance. It's just a point on the wheel of time. Sold is breaking, our system's failing, then bread and
Well, there we are, um, music and also a few faces I think we could do without. I'll leave our audience to judge whether it's us or not. But uh, that's the end of today's news. Thank you very much for joining us wherever you are in the world. Big thank you to Alex and, of course, your guest, Arba. Uh, we will be back in a few minutes' time for UK Column Extra. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.